Well, good morning, church. Let's turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Leviticus chapter 18. And uh, just a reminder here, if you have children aged 0 to 3, we do have creche available uh, on the side of the building if uh, you wish to use that. We are continuing in our study of the book of Leviticus this morning, and this morning we come to a new section of the book. Uh, You'll remember, if you've been with us, that uh, the book is God establishing a worship system uh, among the Israelites that teaches them what it will take for a holy God to dwell with an unholy people. And what we have seen so far is that God wants clean worship, uh, a pure worship that says something about His holiness. We have seen that God wants the priests to be holy, worshippers who approach Him in a holy manner at the temple, and even the sacrifices themselves that they bring must be holy. They must be different and separate and set apart. In all of this, God, of course, shows the distance between He and the people. And shows chiefly that he will have to atone for man's sin if this project of God living together with man is to be successful in any shape or fashion. And then, of course, on Good Friday, you remember we saw the significant message of the Day of Atonement in chapter 16. So now we turn our attention to the next four chapters, that is chapter 17 through 20, which we'll consider this week and next week. The focus of these chapters, unlike the preceding chapters, is the life of the people of God outside the tabernacle worship system. These four chapters discuss the righteousness that God requires of His people when the worship at the temple ends, that is, when they go home and live their lives. And we find, rather clearly in these chapters, That in God's mind, worship does not end when the Sunday service ends. Uh, But rather, worship is all of life. In these chapters, we see the Savior of Israel showing himself to be jealous. That he wants the lives of the Israelites to be entirely and completely devoted to him and to him alone. And the chief way that that devotion to God alone is to be expressed is that the people, are going, the people of God are going to have to not conform this, themselves to the pattern of living that the nations around them are living. The nations around the Israelites are devoted to their gods. And how is it seen that the nations around Israel are devoted to their gods? It is seen in the way that they live. It is seen in their lifestyles, how they conduct themselves in normal life. How we, the nations live show who their God is, what they prioritize. And how they prioritize things shows where their worship goes. It has been faithfully said that if you want to truly understand what a person believes, don't ask him, just watch his life. If you want to truly understand what a person truly believes in their heart, Don't let them tell you, but rather watch them as they live. And that life will speak more volumes. At the core of it, 
How a person lives speaks volumes about their estimation of God. It is in how we live that we see what we think about God. Throughout these passages, God speaks and he says throughout a number of times, chapter 17 through 20, he says, do not be like the other nations. Do not be like the other nations. He repeats it over five times in this short space of time. Be, I am the Lord your God. I am the one who saved you. Do not be like the other nations. And what it tells us is that largely that every law that is contained in here is against a practice of the world around them. The nations around them live like this because their gods are different. But the people of God, people of God are going to have to live like this because their God is superior. In summarizing the contents of these chapters, uh, there are four areas that are specially addressed. First, idolatry is forbidden. Second, improper sexual relations are forbidden. Third, the need for atonement is to be sacred among them. And fourthly, a virtuous community life is required of Israel. This morning, we will consider the first two, that is, idolatry being forbidden and improper sexual relations being forbidden. And then the last two, we will look at next week together. So let's consider together the first one, idolatry being forgiven. Turn with me to chapter 17. Let's look at verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the Israelites, and you shall say to them, This is the word that the Lord has commanded, saying, Any man from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox or a sheep or a goat in the camp, or who slaughters it outside the camp, and he does not bring it to the tent of assembly's entrance, to present an offering to the Lord before the Lord's tabernacle, then that man shall be accounted guilty. He has poured out blood, and that man shall be cut off from the midst of the people. This is so the Israelites may bring their sacrifices that they are sacrificing in the open field and bring them for Yahweh to the tent of assembly's entrance to the priest, and they shall sacrifice fellowship offerings for Yahweh with them. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood of the Lord's altar at the tent of assembly's entrance, and he shall burn the fat as as an appeasing fragrance for the Lord. And they may no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat idols after which they were prostituting. This is a lasting statute for them throughout their generations. Jump with me for a moment now to chapter 20 and verse 1. Skip to chapter 20, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, And to the Israelites you shall say, If there is anyone from the Israelites or from the alien who is dwelling in Israel, Israel, who gives any of his offspring to Molech, he, he must surely be put to death. The people of the land must stone him with stones. And I myself will set my face against that man, and I will cut him off from the midst of the people, because he has given some of his offspring to Molech, so that he, might, he makes my sanctuary unclean and profanes my holy name. And if the people of the land ever shut their eyes from that man, and at, and at his giving of some of his offspring to Molech, 
not putting him to death, then I myself will set my face against that man and against his clan, and I will cut him off and all those from the midst of their people who prostitute after Molech. And as for the person who turns to the mediums and to the soothsayers to prostitute after them, I will set my face against that person and I'll cut him off from the midst of his people. This is God's word. In these particular passages, God could not be clear. Clearer, that is. Every man and woman in Israel is to worship God and to worship him alone. In chapter 17, we see that if a person kills an animal out in the field and the priests hear nothing about it, that if the person doesn't bring that animal to the temple, that person is to be killed because it is understood that he is sacrificing to the goat idols, the demons that they used to sacrifice to in Egypt. It must be removed from the people of Israel. He has committed a sin from which there is no return. He is to be killed immediately. Similarly, here in chapter 20, we saw that if someone sacrifices to Molech or consults the Sangomas of the day, he is also to be killed. This is very serious. We have heard multiple times of the, the, the burnt offering and, the, and, the, blood guilt, and the, the guilt offering that people can bring when they commit sins. But from these sins, there is no return. A person is to be killed immediately. And if the Israelites refuse to kill the person, that is to deal with the person decisively, then God himself will deal with him. That's what he says in chapter 20 from verse 4. If you people do ignore his sin, then I myself will take it up against him and his whole clan. That is a lot we can say when we're talking about this. But this morning, I want us to think together. What could cause someone who worships the true, all-powerful God of the universe, who knows what God did for the Israelites in bringing them out of Egypt, what could cause that person to turn to other gods? Just think. What is it? If somebody is in fellowship, communion with the true and holy, everlasting, ever-living God and has seen his power, seen that he has power over every sphere of created nature, why would that person then turn to another God? What could cause that? You could perhaps perhaps come up with a number of answers, but I want to share with you just at least two. The first is familiarity with the way of the world. Familiarity with the way of the world. See, these people have been redeemed from Egypt. They They come from the world. And even when they come into their land, they're going to be surrounded by nations around them that have practices and a way of living. And so that's what they know. This is how things are done. When someone wants a child back in Egypt, this is what is to be done. You sacrifice to the goat idol. When someone wants a harvest in Canaan, well, this is what everyone does. You call on this particular God. If bad things keep happening to you and your family, and then you go down to the river there and you meet the Canaanites, and they tell you, oh, things keep happening to you. No, just go to this Sangoma over here, 
and he'll tell you how to sort things out. See, it's familiar, it's familiarity with the ways of the world. And that is what is at, that is what causes idolatry in one sense. But the second, however, the second reason, second thing that could lead someone who worships the true God to leave that God and go to these these goat idols is given to us by Paul in Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 and repeated by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 5. And listen to this and I hope you catch it. I'll read these two verses for you. Colossians 3 verse 5. Listen to what Paul says. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry. Ephesians 5, verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, who is greedy, and then in quotes, that is an idolater, that person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I hope you Did you catch it? According to Paul, idolatry is greed. Covetousness, wanting more. We must reckon with this reality, friends. At the heart of idolatry, that is at the heart of seeking these other gods, is desire. Desire is at the heart of going to these smaller things and not being faithful to the Lord. It's desire. It's desire for something. Desire for something else. Desire for something new, something more. Desire for the same thing, but more of it. It's desire uncontrolled, desire unchecked, desire not interrogated. Desire reigning in our hearts and in our minds supreme. And it's all kinds of desire, not just some kind of desire, but all kinds of desire. It's desire for sex. Desire for respect, desire for money, desire for affection, desire for food, desire for reward, all kinds of desire. There are as many kinds of ancient gods as there are desires. See, in Africa, we simplified it. We just said, go to the ancestors. Didn't keep track of too many gods. Just just go to the ancestors for all of your desires. But in the, in the ancient world, and even in some parts of the world today, there are many gods that deal with many parts or different parts of people's desires. There's a god of money. There is a god of fertility. There's a god of land, of war, etc. It's all about desire. Wanting something. You see, once getting something becomes all-consuming, you have become an idolater. Once getting that thing, whatever it is, becomes all-consuming, you've become an idolater. The scripture speaks here to people whom God has redeemed. And those whom God has redeemed have every reason to be joyful and thankful even in the midst of their lack. There is never a reason for those who have been redeemed by God to fret uncontrollably. But you see, desire distorts reality. Desire makes you not think straight, not think clearly. It's like me without these glasses. That's what desire does. It 
messes things up and messes reality. I want this. I want this so bad. I have to have it. Idolatry. John Calvin said this famously and accurately. The problem is not that we want something. The problem is that we want it too much. In many ways, we could say that what is wrong with the world is desire. That's what's wrong in the world. Desire. It was, a de- it was desire for a pretty fruit and knowledge that led to Eve doing what God had forbidden. And that brought sin into the world. It was desire that caused David to make his name, unfortunately, synonymous with deadly lust. I challenge you, friend, think. Think with me. I challenge you to think of any man-made atrocity, any major destruction of human life in history, any major evil of yesteryear, and all the problems that, we, that, we, that are caused by people today in the world, in our country, at your work, even in your own life. Think of those things. I guarantee you, you will find somewhere in there, there was desire for something. Someone wanted something, and that led to the destruction that is being experienced. Issue is desire. So, if desire then, desire is so deadly, and certainly by God's people, desire must be tested. I'm interested this morning in helping us to diagnose our hearts and see where it is perhaps where our desires have run amok. Where is it where our desires have gone and gone unchecked? How would I know that my desires are not what they should be? How would I know that I want something and it's gotten to the point where it is idolatry at the moment? How would I know that? Turn with me to James 4. James chapter 4. This is one place where we see how we can test to see that our desires have gone amok, meaning that we have become idolaters. This is what James says in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? For James, the main symptom of an, adult, of an idolatrous people who are adulterous in his language, which means not being faithful to God but seeking other gods, is a quarreling people, a fighting people, a people where there's a lot of squabbles. If there's a lot of squabbles among people, it means idolatry is the thing. If there's a lot of fighting, 
Someone is being an idolater. If I'm always fighting, if I can't enjoy peace, it is because I want something and I'm not getting it, so I act out. I throw a tantrum like a five-year-old. My desire is controlling. If there is a, think of, if you think just with me for a second, if, if there is a, a person or a situation where I find myself constantly losing it, I must acknowledge that idolatry is not far from my heart at that moment. I want something and I want it too much. It might be that, I, I, that that thing is really due to me, but now my desire has gone amok. Now I want it too much and so I start acting out. I react because I'm being controlled by my desire. I'm no longer being controlled by the Holy Spirit, being controlled by truth and righteousness. I'm being controlled by something. And even if it's not always, but I must acknowledge that when my frustration is uncontrollable, idolatry is not far. If my frustration is uncontrollable at a particular point in time, idolatry is very close. There is a God somewhere that I've sought after. And I'm, and, I, and I'm chasing after this God, and this God is making me like itself. That's what's happening. That's one example. Frustration. If you're looking for a longer list of things to, to examine yourself, to see where it is that perhaps your desires have gone amok, well, perhaps come with me for a moment to Ephesians chapter 4, from verse 22 to, to 32. I want to show you this longer list where Paul... Uh, sort of shows us what happens to a person whose desires are in the wrong place. You see, in verse in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, this is what Paul says. I want you to pay attention to this. He says, well, let's he says, to put off your old uh, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. And is corrupt through deceitful desires. Okay? Here's our word. Desires. There is an old self that has a particular set of desires. And we ought to be putting that off as God's people. And then he tells us that we are to be, verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self. And then in verse 25, he says the same thing, but now being more specific. So what is it that shows that somebody has the desires of the old corrupt self and not living in the new renewed self? Look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, verse 26, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, because that's part of the old self that has wrong desires, but let him labor with his own hands. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So if, here's, the, here's the list. He's listing here. Uh, if, if, I have, if I see behaviors in me, of lying, unchecked anger, stealing, evil speech, bitterness, and then anger comes back again in the, this three times in its various forms. 
If I find in myself any of these things, I must know that I desire something according to the pattern of the old man who is, by definition, an idolater. If you find yourself lying, you want something and you want it too much. If you find yourself taking something that is not yours, you want it. You want it too much and you've become, you are an idolater. If you are bitter and unforgiving, you carry around the hurt, you always bring it up. You, you want something. It's not just because you're struggling with bitterness. No, no, no. There's something you want. And so now you're being controlled by that desire, the desire that belongs to the old self, which means you have become an idolater. This is, I'll commend this self-examination to you. Where is it that your desires have run amok? What is it that you want? If you see these behaviors, trace it back to the desire and deal with that God. Destroy it. Kill it before it consumes you. Now, if we do this self-examination and then we find the idol, how do we solve it? What are we supposed to do? When we find these things in ourselves, what are we to do? Well, that's a, a larger conversation. There's much we can say. But I want to just give you three quick things that the New Testament writers often repeat to us as it relates to our desires. Firstly, the New Testament often and always say to us, consider the gospel. Think on the gospel often. Think on what Christ did for us and how he laid aside what is due to him in order so that he can become nothing and be spit on and killed on our behalf. Constantly think on what God has done in forgiving you and that's going to help you to forgive. Constantly think on how Christ laid aside his riches, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, so that you could be more generous. The scripture constantly says, think about Christ and what he has done and that's going to get to the heart of my bad desires. The second thing is that we are to pray, but our prayer is going to be a bit different. We're not just going to pray for the things that we want, constantly thinking about the things that we want, but we always pray with thanksgiving. Notice how often Paul says that, pray with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving. Pray, consider thanksgiving, what has God done? We are to constantly be thinking about what is it that we have that we have been given that we do not deserve. How often we are in the debt of gratitude to God if a person can even, you can even turn your prayers and pray in an unchristian way. If you're just constantly thinking about stuffing your face, getting, 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 and you're not stopping to think, look at what I've been given. Scripture says, pray, bring your supplications to the Lord, but bring them with thanksgiving. Thirdly, Cultivate the Christian virtue of contentment. Constantly learning. Paul says in Philippians, I have learned what it is to exist with or without. You need to learn that. There is a muscle. And for some of you, it's weaker than others. And for all of us, we can grow in that muscle. To learn to bless God even when everything is taken away from us. There is a muscle. And oftentimes the Lord will take you through those values 
so as to exercise that muscle and make it stronger. So whenever we, there is an opportunity for us to, to make shipwreck of our faith, to curse God because something that we desire, something that we love has been taken away from us, we need to think like Job. Shall we only accept good from God and not evil also? We need to think like him. God is blessed forever. He gives us this. He gives us that. Blessed be his name. Knowing also in thanksgiving that even this is working for our good in Christ Jesus. Those three things to deal with. Consider the gospel. Pray with thanksgiving. And and learn. Exercise the muscle of contentment. Idolatry is forbidden. That is the first one. The next thing here then, in chapter 18, is sexual impurity is forbidden. Come with me to Leviticus 18, the chapter that was read for us. And we will pick it up in verse 6. It was read for us, so I'm not going to read the entire thing, but I I want to read uh, two portions of it. Verse 6. None of you shall approach anyone who is his close relative to expose their nakedness. I am the Lord. Jump to verse 22. And you shall not lie with a male as lying with a woman. That is is a detestable thing, an abomination. You shall not have sexual relations with any animal becoming unclean with it. And a woman shall not stand before an animal uh, with it. That is a perversion. We have discussed uh, throughout this study of Leviticus the idea that is really huge, the theme that is huge in the book of perfection and wholeness. The concept of a perfect or a whole thing is a thing that that fits exactly the design for which it was made. Consequently, when it comes to Israel's sexual ethic, God does not want to see among his people the perverse actions of the world around them. Chapter 18 and the second part of chapter 20 discuss in clear detail what God considers to be imperfect and perverse sexual behavior. In these lists, we find incest, homosexual acts, Adultery, fornication, and bestiality. In God's mind, these things are detestable. These things are imperfect practices that demand judgment by the Israelite community. The people around them, that is the nations around them, did these things. And God wants to ensure that his people know that he hates these things very specifically. And the nation of Israel not only must know that God hates these things, but you saw there as we were reading that they must cut off from among them the people who do these things. There's different varying levels of judgment. This commitment to dealing with these sins is repeated emphatically in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul speaks of incest that was happening in the church of Corinth. And Paul was saying this should not be done and they need to take that person out of the church who was committing that. 
Romans chapter 1 speaks of homosexuality as a twisting of natural desire, a brokenness in the natural scheme that God designed. 1 Corinthians 6 lists, among among others, adulterers and fornicators as those who will be cut off from the people of God. Now you might wonder, how are these practices imperfect? How are these practices unwhole, perverse? Well, the key phrase to understand here is that the scripture talks of these things and in that word there, being perverse. In other words, these things are not natural. They go against how God designed humanity. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, we are told that God made humanity in his image, male and female. And in Genesis 2, we are shown that when a similar yet different counterpart is required for Adam in the work of subduing the world, animals are rejected categorically. No equal yet opposite of Adam is found among the animals. The animals are not like Adam. Instead, God in his perfect design creates woman who is perfect for Adam, and Adam is perfect for woman. She is then given to him in marriage, and they become one flesh. Anything and everything that deviates from that design is perverse, imperfect, and is a blemish. Consequently, when people engage in behaviors that deviate from this design, they are proving that something in them is terribly wrong. A lamb was designed with four legs. If a lamb has, has three legs, it is imperfect, a blemish, and it is not fit to be brought to the, to the temple to sacrifice to God. In the same way, a person who, who, who acts in ways that deviate from this design of Genesis 1 shows that something is terribly wrong in them. You see, being leads to doing. The argument of the Lord Jesus is that good fruit comes from good trees. Bad fruit comes from bad trees. Therefore, if something is behaving in a manner not according to design, we can safely conclude that something has broken somewhere. In Johannesburg, I don't think I need to persuade anyone that bestiality or incest are unnatural and should be avoided. I think that, don't think that's a problem for us in Johannesburg. If you have questions about that, you can talk to Michael afterwards. But there might be someone here who is not convinced that homosexuality is a perversion of the wholeness of human sexuality. So I want to talk to you for a second. When it comes to the sexual act, God designed that that act be performed by a man and a woman in a committed covenant. As such, it is both a physical man and woman as well as an emotional act, man and woman in a committed covenant. Not only does it involve the bodies, but it also involves the heart, the mind, and the will. Homosexuality and its practices fail at the physical test of wholeness. Think, here is a lamb. Here is a lamb. And before we bring it to the temple to be sacrificed, you and I saw that it must be perfect, without spot. 
So when we inspect this lamb, we need to see perfection in it. There should be nothing that's wrong in it. It's the same way with the sexual act. Homosexuality fails at the physical. It is not part of the design. It is not des- the, se- the sexual act is not designed in that way. And even a, a glance, just, a, just a, a, a short glance at scientific studies show that there are a, a number of negative statistics that are higher among the, among the LGB community. It is a known fact in social studies that suicides and suicide ideation is much higher among people in that community. And what is interesting is that the depression and the anxiety and the suicide ideation and the suicides do not decrease even though acceptance of those practices becomes more and more normal and bigger in the society. These studies show this very clearly that it doesn't matter how much a society accepts these practices as normal, the the, the brokenness within still remains. It shows us that it has nothing to do with other people. It has everything to do with what's going on internally. God, the designer of man, knows what he is talking about when he says that this is a perversion. This goes, the same goes for fornication and adultery. While homosexuality and bestiality fail at the physical test, fornication and adultery fails at the heart, mind, and will. It doesn't take long to see that most social studies on the subject show that promiscuity does not lead to happiness. Having multiple sexual partners, having a free fall with your body in that way does not lead to a fulfilled or happy life. In fact, the studies show clearly, secular studies that is, show clearly that people are dissatisfied. In fact, uh, in some recent studies have shown that not only having multiple sexual partners causes later trouble in commitment, but even cohabiting before marriage, that increases the probability of divorce. One core factor in seeing if these people are going to be together for the long term is whether or not they lived together before they got married. Okay, you see, friends, when, when Hollywood and social media advertises a promiscuous lifestyle or a lifestyle of sex outside of marriage, it does not advertise the emotional damage, the physical exhaustion, and the long-term psychological problems that are linked to sex outside of marriage. But that data is out there. It is very seen and it is very well seen and clear out there, showing you that it is an idolatry that is trying to hide from you what, what you'll find when you do it. See, it's saying to you, here's a wonderful lifestyle. Pursue this. Have a good time. Wait. Don't commit. Do have fun. Do this. But it doesn't show you what happens on the other side. But the the data is there. A brief look, even just at some secular studies. Go look this up yourself. You will see that humans are not built for anything that is outside a one natural man, one natural woman, lifelong covenant relationship. Anything outside of that is perversion. And that will destroy people and and incurs the judgment and wrath of God. Now here's the thing. What's worse about this is that Jesus 
in the New Testament actually ups the ante. See, if you think this is hard stuff to take, Jesus makes it even worse. Because Jesus, in the New Testament, says it is not enough to say that you have not done these things physically. It's not enough for you to be seen. So, see, because in Jesus' day, they were walking around, a lot of them, saying, I have not done these things that are in this basket physically, therefore, I'm fine. I've not committed fornication. I've not, I've not committed adultery. I'm not a homosexual. So, therefore, I'm fine. But, look at, but Jesus says in the New Testament that it is not enough to say you haven't done physically. The very fact that you have thought about it, the very fact that you have fantasized, the very fact that you have undressed people with your mind, that is enough to make you imperfect and unclean before the Lord. So when you're considering this lamb, this, this perfect lamb that needs to come and be sacrificed at the temple, you don't just look at whether or not the physical act has been done. What causes a massive blemish and a spot that makes it unacceptable before God for worship is that you have lusted and thought about it. That you've undressed people, that you've watched things, that you've enjoyed things, that you've allowed yourself to dwell in thoughts that God despises. Jesus ups the ante and makes it horrible for us. Jesus moves the conversation away from action and he moves it to the heart. We can say that Jesus moves the conversation away from action and he moves it to our desires. What we have wanted and how we have wanted it as it relates to sexual purity, that is enough to make us unclean. If our desires are perverted, we are guilty. Full stop, end of story. Not fit to worship God. If our desires are, are our, our, our desires and our minds and our fantasies are full of things that God detests. We are, in, we are, we are to be judged. Jesus says this. So what must be done? What can be done? Because while perhaps we were talking about the physical, you were saying, this is for, I hope so-and-so is listening. This is for those other people. But as soon as we move it to our desires and our minds and our heart, not a single man or woman in here can say they're innocent. So what must be done? Number one, there needs to be repentance. There needs to be repentance. Repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way to escape the judgment that is to come because of these actions. True repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way to run away from what God is going to bring upon the world because of this. I would be remiss if I did not warn anyone in here this morning that God's impending judgment will, will, will come for those who continue unabated in such perversions, whether in their minds, continuously, or physically. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Repent. 
and trust in Christ and be washed. If you have not repented and trusted in Christ and be washed, judgment is coming. You will be at the end, be cut off from among the people of God. Yes, you're here this morning sitting among the people of God. But if you continue in these things unabated, you will be cut off from the people of God. Just like it was done in Israel. The only way to escape it is to repent. Child of God, listen to me. If you find yourself stuck in such a sin, whether it is in the mind or you're doing it physically, repent. Turn away. Speak to someone. Confess it. Bring it to the light and deal with it. Do not be stuck in it because this warning is for you. Continuing in these sins unabated might be proving that while you think you're fine, something is wrong. Second thing, children of God, we must also know that in Christ, what the locusts have eaten can be replenished. What the locusts have eaten will be replenished. Meaning that if any one of you has sinned in this way and you have truly repented, wholeness will be restored. The great doctrine of Jesus' wholeness, holiness being attributed to all those who believe on him means that we are not just forgiven, but we are given new white robes and we are remade pure and our fallen bodies that bear the marks of our sexual sin will be resurrected perfect like Jesus' body as though they've never done it. The great hope is that we are not just washed, but we are sanctified. It is a great hope. This means that there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. You will not walk in the kingdom of heaven around with the marks that show the scars of your sin. Jesus Christ has taken that punishment fully on himself and he gives you his own perfection. He is the unblemished lamb and he takes his unblemishedness and he gives it to you. Now, when we see you walking in the kingdom of heaven, we see you walking as sparkly white lamb with nothing wrong in it. Praise God. And think on that. Especially if, you, if you're thinking about your past sins and what you have done and how it's affected you and your relationship. Just know that what the locusts have eaten is replenished in Christ. Continue steadfastly. Continue walking the road. Continue repenting from sin. And the Lord Jesus will bring you home and make you whole again. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, restore us, fix us, continue your work of cleansing us and washing us and sanctifying us and making us more like you. We're so thankful that for us to walk and come to, the, to this place of worship, we don't need to come already remade. We come trusting in you. We come knowing that even though we might have sinned just this morning, if we repent and continue to trust in you, your righteousness is ours. 
Your righteousness is entirely ours. It is not a righteousness of our own that we have a trust in. We thank you, Lord, that we do not fear coming here this morning because of the holiness of God. Why? Because we are clothed in the righteous robes of the Son of God. Now we praise you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done for us. You have not only taken away our judgment, but you you are restoring and making us beautiful again, pure like you are. What a God we have. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we look to other gods in a foolish thing. Forgive us when our desires have controlled us and made us want other things and made us fight and lie and steal. Oh, forgive us, Lord, for this adultery. Train us for godliness. Work in us. Make us pure. Amen. This hymn we're about to sing is a favorite of mine. And particularly I love in verse 3 when the hymn writer says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Who here does not feel their heart wanting often to desire things too much? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Stand with me together and let's sing this together.